Welcome to Because I Want to Know, the podcast where we get into people's heads and find out how their choices in life has affected them. My name is Leslie Fear. I'm your host. So let's get into it, shall we? Hey, everyone. Today I'm joined with psychologist Jan Canty. She's the author of A Divided Life. She's also a podcast host of Domino Effect of Murder. Welcome to the show, Jan. Thank you for having me, Leslie. I appreciate it. Absolutely. You and I met through a podcast group, and I am intrigued and horrified and fascinated by your story all at once. And before we get too far into this, can you kind of give a description of what happened to you about 30 years ago? You can go into it as far as you want or keep it as light as you want. It's up to you. However you want to describe it is totally your call. Well, I'll try to boil it down. It's a complicated situation, but uh, the essence of it was that about 30 years ago, I'd been at that point in my life married for about 11 years to a psychologist. I was in training to become a psychologist and was just about finished with my postdoctoral fellowship. There was a night in July in 1985 where my husband did not come home, which was extremely unusual for him. He was very punctual. And I remember it was a raging storm that night, a thunderstorm with hail and thunder and lightning. And at first I wasn't concerned because I thought, well, he's delayed by the weather. But this was before cell phones and so on. So I just had to wait and wait. And finally I called my neighbor. He took me downtown to where his office was. We couldn't find him. The next morning I tried to report him missing, but they wouldn't take the report. I called my mother-in-law who had connections in the Detroit Police Department. They got looking. A week went by, still no word. My parents flew in from Phoenix to assist me. And one Sunday morning, I was called down to the Detroit Police Headquarters by Inspector Gil Hill for an interview. And essentially what he said was that they had some preliminary evidence that suggested that my husband had been murdered in an alley house on Casper, but they did not have his body. And therefore, you know, we, we needed that back in those days. The DNA wasn't was it is now. And he would keep me posted. Wow. I was, of course, stymied. I, I couldn't imagine who or why that would happen. And it was about another few days, maybe three or four days, where I was called back downtown with Detective Marlis Landeros to see Inspector Hill again. And when I got in the room... He said that he wanted Detective Marlis Landeros to drive me to the morgue, that they had found his body parts strewn up and down I-75 from Detroit up to the northern lower peninsula of Michigan. Oh, my goodness. They They had unearthed the identifiable body parts, which had been buried in a landfill area where roadkill were deposited. So... She took me to the morgue and tried to prep me for what I was going to see because his head and hands and feet had been buried for a week in this bog. And uh, my dad tried to do it for me, but they said no for legal reasons. It had to be me. So we went through that process. And then on leaving the morgue that morning, the media assembled, and that was my first clue of just how relentless they were going to be. The trial happened in December, which was very quickly. That was very quick because this was in July, as I said. It was record time. There was two perpetrators involved, John Carl Fry Sr. and Don Marie Spence. They got convicted. He got life without the chance of parole, and she was given a very light sentence, so light, in fact, that she was out before my house was sold. 
So the police backed off, but the media backed in, and they would not let go. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I, I moved a couple times. I changed my phone number. They were extremely rude and intrusive. And ultimately, I left Michigan altogether and didn't look back for 30 years. I didn't mention it, didn't tell anybody about it. I moved out of state, changed careers. And then three events happened almost on the same day, which changed all that. I was attending a lecture at work by a physician, and he made an offhanded comment. It wasn't the subject of his talk, but he made the comment that people who live with a secret for years pay a price physically. Mm, right. The thing that happened in that same time frame is a coworker went missing. And people were talking about it, of course, and people were coming up to me and saying, could you imagine having somebody in your family missing? And I'm going, oh, no, I can't imagine that. And I'm thinking, I'm lying constantly. Right. Of course I can imagine what that's like. And I kind of caught myself doing that, and it upset me because I don't like lying, and I don't think of myself as being disingenuous. Anyway, I went back to my office and just kind of regroup and think about the lecture and think about the fact that my coworker was missing and people's reactions to it. And I glanced over at a shelf of books in my office, which I had collected over those 30 years that I loved, and they're my favorite books today. And they all have to do with people who've been through some kind of horrific event in their life, very, very different kinds of events, and come to terms with it and ended up writing about it. And I got to thinking about it, and I thought, you know, if they can come out of the shadows, I can come out of the shadows. I might be even able to write about it. So it took me six years, but I ultimately wrote A Life Divided, and it's a true crime memoir, I guess, if you had to capsule the name of it and what genre it was. And from then, I I had a relative of mine named Holly who lives in uh, South Carolina, and she owns a business of crime scene cleanup. And one day she said to me, you ought to have a podcast. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know anything about podcast. I don't know anything about but ultimately, I couldn't let the idea go, and so in February of this year, I started my podcast, which is called The Domino Effect of Murder, and the intent of that show is to kind of go into detail about the long-term repercussions of what it's like to be a so-called homicide survivor, or somebody who's grieving the loss of somebody who died from violence, because the media and movies and even academic research make it appear as if once the person's incarcerated, once a verdict comes down, it's over. And it's that's really the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, a bunch of aftershocks from that point on, which I wanted to draw attention to by interviewing people who've been down the same path as me. So in order to do that, I joined that group uh, that I met you on, and here I am today. Wow, Jan. First of all, God bless you, honey. I, I, well, you know, not to make light of it, it's just, it's so heavy. And I know what happened years ago, but I think you're right. I think things like this, they don't go away unless maybe you do talk about it. And even then you'll never forget it and you'll never know. And even though you're a trained psychologist, you've had experience with other people, maybe not with the same exact thing you've had happen to you, but with horrific childhoods or bad marriages or abusive things happening. But this is, I'm not even sure you knew how to handle this. You were already a psychologist, you were married to one. And I remember you in another interviewing going, how did I miss that? How did I miss him having this? That was probably the hardest part of it was thinking, you know, I'm an expert in human behavior and his deceit, he had 18 months of deception where he was leading a secret life and uh, met up with and helped support the lifestyle of two criminals for his own purposes. 
And I didn't miss all of it. I totally believed him when he said he was working late. I didn't question our bank accounts. There was all kinds of red flags that in hindsight, I wish I had undertaken because especially because I was brand new to the field at that point, I'm thinking, am I cut out for this career because I missed this and it's right under my own roof. It still hurts when people say, well, how could you not know? Because oh, right, I don't have right. an answer really except to say the love is blind, I guess. Well, and also you were 18 years his junior. So, you know, he had a lot more life experience than you had. You were way younger. I don't do things now the way I used to do things then, (laughs) hopefully for the better. (laughs) And that's my point. Yes, there may have been red flags that you know now. Although back then, why would you have thought that? Um, He came from a very different kind of family from what I've heard you read from your Divided Life book. Can you tell us a little bit about his family? He was an only child. His parents were better off financially than the family I grew up in, but they were not ostentatious. They lived very modestly. They packaged away every penny they could. They were not socialite. However, they were very protective of the Canty name. They had a lot of connections with the mayor and the city police. And my mother-in-law was on the board of directors at Wayne State University. My father-in-law was, I hate to use the word psychologist. He used that term to describe himself, but he really wasn't licensed. He didn't even have a doctorate, but that's back in the days when you could get away with that stuff. Right. (laughs) Anyway, he worked for the uh, police department and his specialty was identifying traffic offenders. And he was rather stuffy and they were difficult to reach. I felt always like an outsider. I had thought that maybe they would welcome having a daughter, but they were, it was, it felt like a trio that I was not welcome in. Uh, They were kind of aloof and very, very formal. They didn't joke around much. They didn't disagree with anything. And it was all about appearances. Um, And they kept everything sterile feeling. Whereas my family, we were kind of loud and we liked artistic things, mechanical things. We traveled, went to the drive-in movies. We had friends over. It was always overflowing with company. And my parents were very loving and very funny and very supportive, but strict. They didn't screw around if I messed up. Right. They were there to cheer me on if I succeeded at something, too. And I always felt secure. I always felt confident. I always felt optimistic. Thank God that was the case because it all helped when the roof came down. Well, I can only imagine. And, you know, it's almost like you were conditioned to accept him and his family in a whole different way than you ever did when you were growing up. And that may have been the onslaught of you not understanding what was going on with him and not seeing those red flags. I think two things played into that. One is that my family life was such that it, it never crossed my mind that danger could come from within the family. Right, right. And secondly, I was looking at the external outside. I mean, he was, from all accounts, successful. And he was the first person that really supported my goals and dreams. And I was so in awe of that. No one had done that. It was back in the, you know, I, was, I graduated high school in 1969. I wasn't prepared for college. I didn't have anybody cheering me. I didn't even have any role models. Right. I knew women that had gone to college. And so it was so refreshing to have someone say, of course you can do it. Of course that's within your reach. And he helped me get from A to B. My parents never went to college, and they didn't 
care if I went or not. But if I did, I had to figure it out myself. Right. They were more interested in if you do a job, just do it honestly, but do what you like and go search the world. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's about the extent of their advice, you know. Exactly. I knew more of what I did not want when I got out of high school than what I did want. But I knew I wanted to go to college. And they were no, bless their hearts, they were great parents, don't get me wrong. But they were of no help when it came to that. So Al was very supportive, very encouraging. And that just really made an impression on me. Yeah, and that was kind of that first planted seed. And not that he was being deceitful then. Um, it no, sound, I don't think so. N- no, but I, I will ask you this, and you don't have to answer this. I know that he got involved with a prostitute and a pimp. Is that correct? Is that? Right. Okay. Was that the main reason or was it a money issue? Because I know he was spending money and giving them money. Can you explain why this even happened? Okay, is it just sex? I don't know. Well, of course, at first I didn't know. But when I started writing the book, because you have to understand, the police were interested in solving the case. That's it. But they didn't hold my hand or help me connect the dots in any way. But after years went by, I started asking more questions aloud to myself. And I started interviewing his old high school friends. I started looking at this and answering. I wanted an answer to that question myself. Right. And what I came to the conclusion with it, it was that, yes, sex was a part of it. But there were many times he'd go over there just to read. He would go over to their house just to pontificate. And, really? And huh. I do a whole chapter on this very question in my book. But I think what happened in a nutshell is that I became his peer and he couldn't handle it. He discouraged me from getting my postdoctoral fellowship, which was a change of heart. He'd always been encouraging to my bachelor's and my master's and even getting my PhD. But when it came to the postdoc, he was like, well, I don't have one. You don't need it. You don't have to do that. And I said, mm. well, I want to do it. Right. Then I'd be doubly credentialed. And he was, he was not happy. And then I started questioning him about his approaches. I'd say, well, what about neuroplasticity or what about pharmacy situation we got over here? And I started disagreeing with him on theoretical issues related to psychology. And he did not like that. I'm not saying we had knockdown arguments, but he became robust. I mean, that's how he came off. Like, how dare you question me? And I think what happened really was that he needed to be the authority. Mm-hmm. And as long as he oh, was yeah. the giving one, the handling of the situation with money or words or encouragement, he was fine. But I think inside he probably felt like a phony, given his background, that wouldn't surprise me. And so when I started <laughs> questioning him and disagreeing with him, he couldn't handle it. And he set off to find other people to be big daddy with and to be the authority with. And he picked these two, and I think sex was like a a side dish. I don't think it was the main reason he was there. Uh, That's how it started, but that's not where it ended. And he started throwing money at them. He started coming over and giving them breakfast. He started buying cars, paying their rent. I mean, he did anything he could to engage them as his audience. And he ran out of money. And their answer to that was to kill him. And I am so horrified, of course, but fascinated by the fact that he went so far with this, that he was, that you kind of shattered his little image of himself. So he had to find someone else to put him back on that pedestal, even if it was just for his own thought. He had to do it. He had to have someone else think the world of him in order to feel good about himself, I guess. But then you're dealing with these kinds of horrific people who really don't give a rat's butt about you at all. And all they want is your money. All they want is your what you can give them. All right, yeah, we'll give you some sex because you are giving us money today or whatever it is. Another red flag within that 18-month period is that he had a psychotic break. 
and was hospitalized. Mm. His mother lied and said that it was the first time that it ever happened. It turns out that it wasn't. It was the third time that it happened. And when I discovered that in the discharge papers, because this was back before HIPAA, and I was privy to that kind of information, right. I kept thinking, what is the common denominator? What, what would have tripped him three different times? And I couldn't figure it out. Because at that point in time, I didn't know anything about his other life, in which he had even adopted a different name and had this big story about his background and so on. But in hindsight, it did make sense because the common denominator all three times was that he was outside of control of the situation he was in. The first time was when he was drafted into the Army. He couldn't adjust to Army life. The second time was when his first wife left him. Mm. And the third time was when I, quote, left him, academically speaking. So I think losing control was his Achilles heel. Absolutely. But that is so crazy to me that something, I don't know, it's just an ego thing. I think also, I'm just, my head is spinning with questions and I can't even get them out as fast as I want. Now, let's go back. So... When you found out that he had been murdered, of course, you were devastated. But after however many days, I think you probably knew something was up. And then you had to go identify him. I don't even know how you could have done that, Jan. One of the things that helped was I was very tired. I hadn't slept a lot for about 10 days. In fact, I wouldn't even describe it as days. To me, subjectively, it felt like one long day. I'd catnap, I'd get up, I'd walk. I didn't even change my clothes. I wasn't eating. It was like, it's hard to describe. I I felt like I'd stepped into somebody else's life. And so I, I think fatigue numbed the impact of the identification process. And I didn't do it alone. My father was on, literally propped me up on under one arm and Detective Landeros on the, under the other arm. And when I got in that chamber, I, you know, it's kind of fuzzy. I don't remember if there were other people in there. I think there was, but I'm not positive. And I remember I couldn't speak. The words she said to me before we opened the door, she said, all you have to do is say yes or no. That's it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we need this for trial. And you need to do this to ensure yourself that he's never coming home. Mm. And if this is back before we have the technology we do today in terms of medical examiner buildings and the odor was horrific. And oh, no. It was really plain. I mean, it, it just, just put his head there, you know. And I opened my eyes and I couldn't talk. And then I nodded and she said, no, you have to say out loud yes or no. So they had to start the procedure over again. And then when I said the words yes, she turned me around and got me out of there ASAP. And I just felt like my knees were going to buckle and... We went to the front door of the medical examiner building, and that's where we saw this hurdle of reporters. And she took me out the back entrance to her patrol car and whisked me away. But it was something I'll never forget. Well, God bless you, girl. I just, wow. And now to another point, this is a big case. It's all over the news. There are reporters at your house, outside, wherever you are, hounding you. Tell me how that affected you. It was bad. I mean... (laughs) almost as bad as the murder itself because oh, wherever really? I turned, there was somebody with a camera, there was a microphone. I mean, here's an example. At his funeral, I didn't even really particularly want a funeral, but I, his mother wanted one. And I said, I want the memorial service to be really private and really small and really quick. I don't want any fanfare. Right. She agreed. And I went to the funeral home early to reassure the office staff and the undertakers there. I did not want any reporters involved. 
they were off limit. And right at the get-go, I got the sense that they didn't want to comply with that because he said, it's a public street, we can't stop them. And I said, no, but you can stop them from coming in the building. It's privately owned. Right. Well, an hour later, there was 300 people that were crowded into the room, full of reporters, mm. fans out front, satellite dishes, and I was undone. And I was exhausted. And I remember thinking, I'm going to get out of here ASAP. And, and I stood up to leave the moment I could. And this cameraman had his camera within an inch of my nose. Oh, my gosh. And was asking me questions. And my friend's husband happened to be standing right next to me and tapped his hand over the lens and yelled at the guy, get out. And this was exactly what I didn't want. And then he whispered to me, here's the keys to my car, go. So I took his mm. car to my house and locked myself in. That's how the memorial ended. And that's just typical of how they treated me. I, I felt like a commodity. And I didn't meet one person that was sensitive or patient. And it really made me sour to the media. I was not going to cooperate with them. And they were just out for a byline. And they would go to any lengths to get it, whether it was phoning me in the middle of the night, showing up at my office. Oh, my, my goodness. It was relentless. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, anything they can get for a dollar, you know, for the almighty buck, let's put this woman under a microscope and let's, and then they probably try to make you look like some kind of horrific person. Uh, Who knows what they were doing on your end. It becomes a media circus and you feel bad for Princess Diana all over again, you know, because you know, she was, (laughs) you know, this happened to her too. You know, they showed up at the prelim exam, which I was subpoenaed to go to. And I didn't go to the trial partly for that reason. That wasn't the only reason, but partly because I didn't want to deal with the media. I can understand. Give them what they want. I'm not going to go. No, I I can understand. And one thing you did tell me, you said, you know, we were talking before we were recording the other day, and I told you that I wrote paranormal romance novels, and you were like, oh, really? That's interesting. And you said, you don't really believe in that kind of stuff, but something really strange did happen to me. Will you tell the listeners what you told me? Yes, I do remember telling you about this. It was the night that Al did not come home, and it was bad outside the weather. And I walked into his office, which we had at the house. He had two offices, one in the building downtown and one in our house. And it was about midnight. I walked into his office at the house and glanced in the mirror. And out loud, I said to myself, he's never coming home. He's dead. And then I heard myself say that, and I'm like, what the heck? That's a (laughs) thing to say. And no, 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 there's going to be a simpler explanation. I I found it hard to believe that I had said that aloud because that seemed like an extreme reaction, the fact that he's just been missing a few hours. But in fact, it turned out to be accurate that that was about the time. In retrospect, I realized that his body parts were being loaded into the vehicle and they were going to start driving north. Wow. And, you know, it's almost like maybe he sent you a sign. I know you don't believe in all that. I totally understand and get it. But I think there is a connection there. And that's the way I'm going to perceive it in my head, because that's how I go. That's how I go with things like this. But no, your story is so tragic. And I'm so sorry that this happened to you. But I think you coming out on the other side will only help people, Jan. And your podcast is amazing. You read excerpts of your book. And you were a fantastic writer. And, you know, like I said, just the fact that you've got these people on your podcast and you guys talk about the domino effect of murder. What happens to people after the fact? The family members, the friends, the financial situations that happen. I mean, I can only imagine 
how all that happened. You were in this huge house that you didn't want because he wanted it. And then I don't even know where you went from there. I don't think you talked in that interview what you did after that. I downsized. I sold it as best I could. I mean, it was devalued because in Michigan at that time, and I think it's still this way today, if there's a serious crime involving the owners of the house, even if it did not occur on the premises of the house, that has to be disclosed to purchasers, which devalues the house. Wow. And if you don't tell them and they get suspicious and say, oh, you know, the place is haunted or whatever, then they can relinquish the sale at any time in the future. You have to disclose that. So that devalued the house. So I got out of there. I mean, he left me in today's dollars, oh, probably like $100,000 in debt. The house was devalued. Oh, my goodness. Paid income tax for two years. It was a mess. Everywhere I turned, it was a mess. And so I downsized and I tried to rebuild my life in this cute little brownstone house that I moved into. I loved it there. But the media would not let up. And so I eventually sold that and moved to the Midwest and started teaching. And I just tried to reinvent myself, which was easier to do in those days because the Internet had not been, you know. Thank goodness. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Social media. Right, right. No, I mean, now we depend on it. And it's very helpful if we want to get the word out. And in today's society, it's great. But yeah, for what you went through, it was kind of a blessing in disguise, really. So yeah, well, so tell me a little bit about your podcast, what you talk about on it, and what people can expect when they listen to your show. The podcast is about the repercussions of homicide on the human shock absorbers, the ones that are left behind. Right. And I have met the most amazing people. (laughs) They're all different. They've come from all walks of life. Their situations are all unique. But one of the things that I have found is the aftermath is not uh, unique, that there's a fairly predictable sequence of what happens after the fact. And there's not a way that it does not affect your life. I mean, you're affected physically, for example, insomnia. You're affected cognitively, for example. It goes to believing the world is safe and predictable and fair to thinking it's unfair and unsafe. Right. It can affect you financially. There's been people that have lost their jobs over this. It can affect you socially because people feel awkward. They avoid you. They don't know what to say, and you're very alone. Mm. It can affect you spiritually. There's not a way, and there's not an organ in your body that's not impacted by this. And it can go on and on. There's a family I interviewed who the one that died was a sweet little two-and-a-half-year-old, three-year-old girl who was murdered by her mom's new boyfriend. Mm. He got convicted. And he was put away for 10 years. He served his time. And they moved back to near where the family lived. Oh, wow. So there's always some way that it's going to catch up to you. For me, recently, we I hired a landscaper to trim the bushes along the edge of my property, which happened to face a jogging path because it was really overgrown. I went off to work. I came home. There was nothing left but trunks of trees. It was barren. Wow freaked me out because one of the things that we know about trauma survivors is they need boundaries. They want to have secure feelings about their immediate life and space and protection. And I could not sleep. I told my, I remarried and I told my husband, we need to get a fence in there ASAP. And he's like, what's the deal? It's kind of pretty the way I said, no, 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 we need to get a fence in there now. And he didn't understand it, but he went along with it. I mean, and this is, you know, 30 years later. Right. So it, it never goes away. But I also want to be quick to point out something else, and that is that something that's not talked about frequently enough, which I do bring up on my show when I can, is the concept of post-traumatic growth, in which Mm. there is about, I don't know, 30 to 50% of people who go through trauma actually come out stronger for it. 
and they find new careers, like the guy that you interviewed for the prison. Right. Sometimes it, it, it just puts them in a different direction, and they find strength they didn't know they had mm-hmm. until the trauma happened on them. Right. And you find that, too. And so it's not all bleak. It's not hopeless. And it's not without the assistance of other people. Fortunately, today, homicide survivors do have rights. Back in the day when I was facing it, we didn't. Reporters had more rights in the courtroom than I did. But today, you can give a victim's impact statement. You're notified of parole. You're notified of escape. Speak at parole hearings. You are to be provided a safe waiting place within the courtroom because sometimes the family and friends of the defendants want to do you harm. And that's thanks to Marcy's law. That's new. So it's not all bleak. And the basic hurdle, as I see it, is that people just don't get plugged in. They don't know. And it's, it's so rare. I mean, homicide is rare. It has grown in the last year. The incidence of homicide has grown from about 18,000 in the United States annually. It's probably closer now to 20,000 a year. Wow. But, and, and for every homicide, there's about seven to 10 people that are deeply and immediately impacted by that death. And while resources are there, they're not plugged into them. They don't know how to access them. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to do my show. Well, I tell you, and also what I think is wonderful for you is, well, unfortunately, you had to go through this. But the fact that you are a psychologist, and this is your line of work, you understand all of the things these people are going through, every aspect of every kind of grain of feeling, whether it's the loss, whether it's the deception, the financial issues, the the questioning your own sanity and your own thought pattern. You understand every bit of that, you know? Because of my training, some things did not upset me that might upset someone else. For example, the nightmares when they started, I'm like, yeah, that's about right. (laughs) In other words, the training didn't prevent me from going through the aftershock, but I understood them. Oh, yeah. But I mean, the fact that you can help other people because you have gone through it. You know, you had to go through the bad stuff to get to the good, unfortunately. And it's been years, and thank goodness time can heal, but it certainly doesn't let you forget. And the guests on my show know where I'm coming from. They know I'm not just a reporter trying to pick apart their story and sensationalize it and get ratings. And oh, I, no, no, I yeah. I in their shoes, and I right. get it. And I'm sensitive to the limits of what they're capable of talking about and not talking about. And most of them are pretty candid. Yeah. Well, and that's why I wanted you on my podcast, because I know there's people I'm sure that listen to my podcast, maybe are hiding something or or something's happening. They don't know what's going on, or they found something out. They can listen to your podcast and understand the insides and outs of how to deal with things, why people do the things they do, all those things, maybe even understanding the red flags along the way. Also reading your book, A Divided Life. It was like the cops were introducing you to your husband. When they were telling you the whole story of what was going on, you were like, what? Yeah, exactly. You'd been married to him for 11 years, right? I I was about 11 years almost. But one of the points I wanted to return to that you just made that I want to emphasize, whether it's a homicide, trauma from homicide or trauma from abuse or car accident or whatever it might be, that what research shows is the single best intervention to come out of it is interconnection. So the best thing to do is to pull in a close friend and have them sit there and listen. They don't have to say anything. They don't have to give advice. They don't have to judge or ask questions. Just be there 
for you to pour your heart out to and right. know you're not judged and know you're valued is extremely helpful, as well as some health health groups. You might have to you know, be choosy which one you find, but they can be very helpful. But interconnectedness of some form is very healing, and it's not pathological. In other words, I'm not saying that because someone has gone through a trauma, they need to be seen by a professional. Not necessarily. No, no, no. And I agree. Um, I had some trauma in my earlier years in my childhood. And I won't get into that. But I never really saw a psychologist. But I was thankfully surrounded by good people after the fact. And I was believed and I was listened to. And I was taken care of. And that's all and it that's took. A, that's so important to be believed. That's and to be it. Yes, yes. People underestimate how important that is. That's far more important than antidepressants and anti-anxiety. It really is. Far more important than writing about it by yourself. you got to get it off your chest, and interconnectedness is key. Absolutely. Jan, you have been fantastic, and I can't give you enough praise for your book that I've listened to you read on your podcast and your podcast. I think you're helping a lot more people than you know. So let's tell them again where they can reach you, again, the name of your book and your podcast. The simplest way is simply to go to my webpage, which is www.jancanty.com. C-A-N-T-Y, Ph.D.com. And on there, if they go to that website, it opens up and it says podcast and book. It's real straightforward. Okay. And it'll connect you not only to the podcast of mine, but podcasts that I've been guests on. So yours will be on there eventually, too. But that is one like a one-stop shop if they wanted to get to the book. And it's called A Life Divided. And um, it's on sale at Amazon. And the audiobook version is just around the corner. I'm going to download it. I'm telling you, I was mesmerized by your words. You're a fantastic writer. I'm jealous of that part. Your descriptions are just amazing. And uh, no, you've been fantastic. And thank you so much for joining me today, Jan. Well, thank you, Leslie, for having me. I appreciate the opportunity and good luck to you on your show. If you like what you heard, please leave me a five-star review. It'll help my podcast out and more people will be able to listen. Also, I am a novelist and write paranormal romance. All my books are available on Amazon.com, so check me out. And you can also reach me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you guys all for your support, and I'll talk to you next week.